the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today, would universal background checks have stopped the Freeway Church shooter? How California retrofits labor laws to the gig economy? And we ask what our moral obligations are to stop gun violence. Welcome to the 180 Cast. Hi, welcome back to the 180 cast. I am your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast dedicated to exploring how people change their minds. And you have tuned into another breakdown session where I talk about the biggest stories of the day, break down and analyze the highlights from 180 cast interviews to find out more about how people truly change their minds. We debunk some conventional wisdom. And some other cool things. We have a lot to get to. It was a big news week. And coincidentally, unfortunately, really, one of the top stories of the week has direct bearing on the episode we just did with Reverend Rob Shank, episode 40, on his uh, 180 on gun regulation. So please stay tuned. I think it's going to be a really productive conversation. Before we get started, please do not forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's just one little button, whatever podcast catcher you're listening in. Is it Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or, you know, SoundCloud or whatever? Just press the little button so that you can stay updated and that you remember and you get a notification every time we post an episode, which is every Friday morning. And you wouldn't want to miss that, right? No, no, you wouldn't want to miss that. Okay, and with that, let's move on to the top stories. I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I don't know what we're yelling about! It will top the list. I took out some evil. I took out someone that was evil and had evil intent. But what really you know, chimed in was the fact that he was wearing a wig and a you know, fake beard and a toboggan on his head. And the, and the long coat. I don't consider myself a hero at all. Did what I was trained to do. I only fired one round. And it was, you know, the only shot I had, which, you know, was a headshot. That was 71-year-old Jack Wilson, who took the single kill shot to take out the man who pulled out a shotgun during the Lord's Supper at Freeway Church in Texas and shot two parishioners uh, before he was shot dead by Jack Wilson. He he is a hero. Um, this situation occurred just days, really, after I had a very interesting conversation with Reverend Rob Shank in episode 40, where he talked about his views on gun regulation and, and how they have totally flipped. And now he is for uh, much more extensive gun regulation. But one of the specific things that we talked about, again, just days before this happened, which is kind of an unfortunate coincidence, of course, is um, 
how churches should approach uh, securing their buildings and making sure that their congregants are protected. And I think what we see here with Jack Wilson and the other members of their security team is how this would operate in a in a almost completely successful situation. I mean, two parishioners died, which is an absolute tragedy. But considering what was going on, that there wasn't more loss of life is 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 something to uh, to really be appreciative of. He Jack Wilson is highly trained. He's ex law enforcement. I think he has something like thirty years under his belt of firearms training and law enforcement. So he knew about profiling for for suspicious behavior, and he knows how to handle his weapon extremely well. A single kill shot, I mean, you don't even see that in the vast majority of situations with active cops in the line of duty. So anybody who is uh, trying to tell you that this is overkill, that churches don't need to have armed guards, that this is off-putting, that this is kind of gross and it doesn't show sanctity of life. I don't think that that's correct. I think I, I think I agree with Reverend Shank that you need to have not just random people throughout your congregation that are armed who may in fact cause more harm because they don't have the proper training, but people who are highly trained, very diligent, and focused on that specific responsibility um, making sure that their congregants are safe. The other thing I want to address here, though, is um, how this very evil man uh, obtained his weapon. He was a very disturbed man, and I I don't think that you need to necessarily make a distinction, or you need to choose whether somebody is mentally disturbed or evil. I think in this situation, it was both how he obtained his weapon. And of course, it was not through a licensed dealer because if he had tried to buy a weapon through a licensed gun dealer, he would not be able to get one because of universal uh, background checks for licensed. Of course, there is this massive loophole, which is that private parties do not have to perform background checks on the potential buyers of their weapons. And I want to read to you just a couple statistics that were eye-opening for me that lead me to believe that universal background checks for private parties is necessary. One of them is that since the federal background check requirement was adopted in 1994, this is just one piece of evidence, over 3 million people legally prohibited from possessing a gun have been stopped from purchasing a gun or denied a permit to purchase. And more than 35% of these denials involved people convicted of felony offenses. So background checks work to a certain extent. They're not going to be perfect, but they work. And then states without universal background check laws export crime guns across state lines at a 30% higher rate than states that require background checks on all gun sales. Look, background check is not a huge burden on somebody trying to sell a gun, much less a burden in the constitutional sense on the right to bear arms. They rarely provide false positive results, so it's not like a bunch of people who should be able to get a weapon aren't be, aren't able to get a weapon because this doesn't work properly. And the FBI's quality control evaluations suggest, and I'm getting this information from Giffords Law Center, by the way, suggests that background checks are accurate approximately 99.3 to 99.8 percent of the time, which is pretty darn good. And it only takes a couple minutes to run a background check. This is not rocket science. It's 
not that onerous. Trust me, I know what onerous is because I used to onboard employees who worked in California. Um, it takes like 107 seconds to run this background check through NICS. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't at least make it more difficult for criminals to get their hands on weapons, even if they eventually get something on the black market. I think that it makes it, um, if, if you have law enforcement that is constantly working basically around the clock to shut down um, illegal uh, black market um, gun sales or gun trafficking, then you then your chances of making sure that guns don't end up in the wrong hands is a, is a lot higher. Uh, that just that just makes sense to me, and th- I don't think that this should be like a right or left issue. I do kind of think um, maybe that's cliche of me, but I do kind of think that this is a common sense middle ground that people should agree on. And, um, like you could probably do this on your phone. This, maybe it was onerous in 1994. I don't think it's onerous now. And those are my thoughts on that situation. And now we can move on to talk about AB5, Assembly Bill 5, which became law in this, the, uh, the People's Republic of California on January 1st, just a few days ago, and it is a disaster. It is uh, going to be very, very bad for the gig economy, for drivers, for um, freelance writers, for truckers. Truckers actually got an injunction, so they don't have to abide by this law right now, and they will likely prevail in court um, because they they sought uh, relief from the courts, and they got it. Thank God there's like 70,000 truckers who would have been profoundly affected by this law. Um, if you don't know what uh, Assembly Bill 5 does, it, it uh, codifies a so-called three-part test. Which, uh, part A is that the worker is free from the control and direction of the hiring entity uh, regarding their work. And Part B is that the person performs work that is outside the usual course of hiring of the hiring entity's business, which is where truckers and riders and uh, uh, drivers in the on-demand economy fall short, of course, because the business is delivering to people and that uh, business is conducted through driving. So it's part of the main business. And then the other is that the person is customarily engaged in an independently established trade occupation or business of the same nature as that involved in the work performed. So unless you have a one-person driving company that's like Georgie Borman Driving Company and you're... um, like offering your services to Lyft and to Uber and to DoorDash and things like that, and you're basically your own thing, then maybe you do this. But then you would also fail part two of this test. So that's a test for determining whether a contractor, whether a worker can be considered a contractor. or. And uh, I think that what we see here is an example of the regressive left, as I often say, and I don't say that just to be derogatory or just to slam the other side. I really think that some of the things we see are very regressive. Um, And there is this uh, NYU professor, I found a soundbite from Aaron Sundararajan, who uh, sums up the problem with this bill really well. I think what people have to realize is that um, the world of work has changed in a way that 
um, has taken us away from the predictability of people who work are full-time employees. I expect that in 20 years, a majority of the workforce will not be full-time employees, but will be somewhat, something else. And so rather than trying to sort of retrofit the new work models into these old employment buckets, what the California Assembly should be doing is coming up with ways to figure out, A, why do workers want to be employees, the ones who do well? They don't want the inflexibility. They want the benefits. They want the protections. So extend those protections. Come up with creative funding models. Come up with things like the 401k plan to be able to sort of extend protections, not just to employees, but to all categories of workers, because these non-employees are going to be a majority. I think that this professor is exactly right. They are trying to retrofit laws, but technology has moved us on from that and we have a different kind of economy now. We have an increasingly large portion of the economy that is uh, platform-based. It, it's people who are um, it's people who are utilizing their labor in exchange for compensation via a platform like Uber or DoorDash or something else. And they're just getting paid for the directly for the labor that they're doing, which is driving. Or freelance writers are getting paid for their submissions, which is writing and submitting to a publication. And publications are in the business of putting out content that is writing. An increasingly large portion of the economy is like this. A lot of people are involved in the gig economy, even if it's not their main job. This is going to have a profound effect on them, of course, especially for writers who are in California going to be arbitrarily limited, or are, I guess I'd say now since it's law, uh, limited to 35 submissions per company um, per year, which is a completely arbitrary number. I think the bottom line is this, and it's that the left does not want to accept that technology has drastically changed the ways in which people get paid for their labor. It, We can't go back. We can't go back. And instead of trying to retrofit old laws for an old, typical worker-employee situation, you need to be thinking in new categories and allow this to be something else. Allow it to be something different. Just like we needed to allow ride-sharing to be something different than a taxi service, right? Or uh, allowed, um, um, you know, online writing outlets to be something different than old newspapers, which just had their staff putting out their content, their reporters putting out their content, and then every once in a while they would run an op-ed or a letter to the editor or something like that. Now we have publications that are pumping out so much interesting material from a diverse range of voices, and we can do that because of this thing called freelancing. And Lorena Gonzalez, who championed this bill and is gosh darn it, she's really sticking to her guns on this, says that she is protecting people from exploitation. Really, she's doing. Really, she's taking away so many opportunities for people to do what they love or to just make a little bit of extra money. I don't know anybody who really loves driving that much, but I know a lot of people who love writing like myself and love being able to submit their content and be paid in exchange for that. You can't go back. It's time to think in new ways and to allow the economy to evolve and quote-unquote progressives are notoriously bad at that. So keep that in mind next time you see a labor law come up that is supposedly aimed at helping workers and think to yourself, does this fit with the way that things are changing? Is this going with the times or is it trying to pull things back and fit it back in a box that it's just not going to fit in anymore. And I think that that's 
obviously the sign of a very bad law, and it's going to uh, mean a, a lot more misery for the people affected by this generally. Some people are going to love it. Some people are going to love being an employee instead of a contractor, but I think um, overall, on the whole, this is this is not going to be good. And those are my thoughts on the top stories of the day. And now it is time to move on to highlights from episode 40. Episode 40, as I mentioned previously with Rob Shank, was a very, very interesting and thought-provoking conversation. And I do encourage you to go listen to it just right off the bat. I mean, maybe pause this and go listen to that and then come back to this. Um, might be my suggestion. But um, there are a few things that I recognize within this episode in terms of persuasion that I think are really important to sort of keep our eye out for in other topics and with other people as well, especially with regard to Christians and how Christians are persuaded to one thing or another. And uh, in in Reverend Shank's episode, I identified sort of three main things that really can tip somebody over the edge in getting them to agree with a different position from the one that they had. The first one is with regard to moral authority. And this uh, applies explicitly to Christians because we have a moral authority and we believe in the Bible. And that makes a difference in how we approach people's uh, arguments. Well, I generally go to what Hebrews instructs us uh, in the first chapter that God in times past has spoken to us through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And so Jesus Christ, for me, the key to understanding all of scripture is Christ. So Reverend Schenk has a Christ-centered hermeneutic. That is how he is interpreting all of the Bible is through the lens of uh, the word made flesh of Jesus Christ and how he lived his life and the things that he said and did. This is important because it's going to change the way that Christians are persuaded or rather not persuaded versus somebody else who doesn't hold to sola scriptura, who doesn't hold to the idea that the, that the Bible is the final authority, the final moral authority on anything and everything in the universe, basically. Um, and Reverend Shank looked at the Bible and he looked at what he believed what uh, and he looked at what jesus did for instance he he mentioned how jesus rebuked peter um when he he cut off the the ear of the guard when they came to take jesus away to crucify him and he espoused peace and uh he didn't attack anyone or use any weapons that we know of based off of understand from the gospel or all of the new testament and so his argument is well this is how jesus lived his life and we should take into serious consideration that when we're talking about lethal firearms and whether we should carry them and how it impacts our relationships with other people and what we are prepared to do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so this makes a really big difference and it's going to change the way that you go about persuading a Christian versus persuading somebody else. And if you're not a Christian and you're trying to persuade a Christian of something, you've, you've got to take that into account and uh, you got to know your Bible. Um, 
but there's there's a, a couple other aspects as well that I identify. The other is human connection, which is something that we talked about um, with regard to the episode I did with Dr. David Gushy regarding LGBT inclusion in the church. In the same direction, but it would have taken me a lot longer to get there. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten there with such certainty, but that human connection you know, specifically the agony of a mother for her only child. There was even something particularly spiritual about that analogy. So, and the fact that she was a sister, she was my sister in Christ, who's as close as blood kin, or maybe closer, had something to do with that. So I think she brought me across the finish line uh, quicker and, and more convincingly than maybe someone else or some other set of data would. He was talking, of course, about this woman that he, a 17-year-old son, was shot and killed in a almost a drive-by situation. A contractor who pulled up next to the car and shot up the car about seven times with a handgun. Um I think that you would be hard-pressed to find, and certainly after doing so many of these interviews, I'm hard-pressed to think of anybody who was convinced strictly on the data alone, just them in their office, locked away, um, reading these esoteric texts, tests, um, texts and, and looking at charts and things like that, and then coming out totally persuaded of something else. Persuasion is almost always a human-to-human endeavor and it's it's argument and it's understanding the other person and letting this exchange happen this back and forth and letting the emotions be expressed um and those things are so important and so key to getting people to really change their minds because at the end of the day we're human we have emotions we're not robots you can't just input data and then expect things to change. You really need to see the human application. Um, And the other thing that I notice uh, should be fairly obvious, but it it, it bears repeating, and, and that is that you have to employ reason. It can't just be about a human connection, and it can't just be giving people Bible verses and saying, see, aha, I'm right. There has to be reason. There has to be logic. You know, God gave us uh, our faculties for reason. You know, we are reasonable people because God is the author of reason. He actually invites us through the prophet Isaiah. He says, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Use your capacities of reason. And this is why, for example, we have police forces, uh, because we reasoned about this and said, you know, we need people who are professionally trained, who are uniquely controlled and held accountable. Persuasion is an application of reason in a human-to-human situation. I don't know if I said that exactly the way I should, but I think all three of those things are really important, especially when you're talking about persuade Christians. And of course, Of course, Christians have come to a variety of different opinions based off of reading the same text and applying what they seem to be, say to be reason. And and of course, we're human beings and we're fallible and we don't 
always reason effectively. And so we're going to come to different conclusions. And that is to be expected. But really, I think it comes down to these three things. It's what is the moral authority that this person is going off of? And how do I appeal to that? Um, what is the human connection, the emotional aspect to it, that human component and reason and reasoning, uh, especially if if you're uh, applying reason and you're looking at your moral authority and you're saying, hmm, there seems to be a contradiction. And that is exactly what happened with Reverend Rob Shank. He, he saw a um, contradiction between his pro-life beliefs and his uh, pro-gun, pro-Second Amendment, pro or, or anti-gun regulation stance that he held before, and now he has used he has applied reason to attempt to uh, put those things in line with what he sees as his moral authority, which is scripture. So I hope that that is clarifying and helpful. But I do want to touch really quick on something from the previous breakdown session, which I didn't get a chance to get to, and I think is really important. Um, speaking of the gospel. And so I want to play this soundbite from episode 38 with T. Russell Hunter, which was about his conversion from sort of lukewarm pro-lifeism to uh, being a a very strident and active abolitionist who is lobbying for abolition uh, bills uh, across the country. Um, Let me just play this. And I think that pro-life view, which is popularly held to be more Christian and more kind is actually a very damning view, which leaves a lot of people in sin. And I've met them. I'm sure many of the listeners of the podcast have met them where someone is working in a crisis pregnancy center and they say they regret their abortion, but then they give you this list of, you know, all the reasons that they, that they got it, um, that they got it, that they aborted their child. And when you start talking to them, like, well, have you ever given this to God? They keep putting up all these excuses and you see that they're still, they're still burdened by it, you know? And then you meet someone that's sort of like, no, I totally murdered my child because I was, you know, interested in the dance scene and I was a selfish, wicked person, but Christ has forgiven me. And that person seems to be filled with so much more joy. This person that says, like, I am a former murderer redeemed by a living God versus the person who's like sort of never really given it to God. So seeing those people over time going to clinics and everything um, has totally I I reject most of the pro-life indoctrination, even if you can find a counterexample here and there. It is not the vast majority. What I wanted to highlight there was the the grace that comes with being forgiven. And I when I went back and listened to that breakdown session, I don't think I, I really captured basically the heart of the gospel. It's not just about repentance, right? It's not just about it's not just about recognizing your sin. You're forgiven. Your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. And if you recognize your sin and you recognize the gravity of it, and then you recognize what Christ has done for you on the cross of, of taking all of that on himself and dying for you in your place so that you could have eternal life, there is nothing more freeing than that. And so it's not a burden to women to, to let them acknowledge that what they have done is murder because there's the gospel. If that was the end of the story and and there was no 
Jesus, then then maybe you could make an argument for that, for, for, for just, just burying your head in the sand and saying, no, what I did wasn't actually that terrible. I'm going to make excuses for it. But since we have Christ and we're covered by his blood, there's freedom in saying, look, I did something awful. I mean, this is what the Apostle Paul said. He said, I myself was a, a murderer and I persecuted the church. And now I'm free. Uh, my sins are gone. And I just wanted to bring that up and to your attention, I had that soundbite queued up last time and I got sidetracked on another point and I didn't get around to playing it. So I do hope that is helpful. And that is all I have time for today. Usually I do another three segments, but I am going to try something different this week. And do give me your feedback on whether you prefer this or not. I'm going to sort of break up this breakdown session into two sessions that are shorter. And so I will do the the woke of the week, the flip phone and debugging conventional wisdom, or as I sometimes uh, rotate that, um, the uncorking the culture. And you should expect that on um, Tuesday, I think. So new year, new plans, new fun stuff. Please do not forget to subscribe to the podcast before you leave so that you are notified when I post the other breakdown session and when I post the upcoming interview I did, which I am very excited about. I did an interview with Charlie Evans, who is the founder of the Detransition Advocacy Network. I think we had a really interesting, productive conversation um, that should uh, be very thought-provoking. And with that, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have had a wonderful beginning to the new year. Seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got. In the middle of a struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got. In the middle of executive producer Kevin McCullough, music by Ricky Craft. In the middle of a struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.